Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin, the premier podcast for all things banking, payments, and fintech. Here are your hosts, Mike Townsend, Brian Romley, and Faisal Khan. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Around the Coin. We are excited today. We had a fantastic pre-show and have a lot of great topics lined up. Uh, We have the three of us on the show today. Brian Faisal, Mike here. Faisal, can you uh, give us a little update on your life? What's happening? How are things? Good morning. Happy Easter. Uh, To all those celebrating it, nothing much. Just one week left before money 2020. Extremely excited about it. Uh, And looking forward to meeting a lot of people over there, covering it, taking selfies and God knows what. (laughs) And uh, are you going to be using Snapchat? Can we follow you on Snapchat during your show? You know, that's, that's what a, everyone wants to know. That's a good thing. Yeah, uh, maybe I will. Who knows? Maybe we'll just create an around. The, I think what what we're going to do is create an around the coin Instagram account and just start posting it over there. I you like gotta, that. You got to Snapchat it. You got to Snapchat it. I it's don't the only know how to, to use it, but I will figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So you want me to make wines and Snapchats and small things and. Maybe just why, yeah. why don't I just, why don't I just sit down over there with Periscope and just start you know start. Uh, oh, bro- you should do Periscope. Oh, seriously, yeah. seriously, yeah. no, yeah, serious. I was joking, right? <laughs> you know that, right? <laughs> but that's about it. So one week left, um, and really looking forward for the next six days over there in Copenhagen. That's awesome, Brian. What's uh, what have you been working on? I see you posting some interesting pictures. Tell the people about your your science projects. Uh, boy, good morning, gentlemen. Happy Easter to all out there. Uh, let's see, what am I working on? Um, Amazon completely changed the game, uh, basically overnight with Alexa and Echo. What did they do? They released a development kit on GitHub uh, that allows you to install Alexa or basically the precursor to a full Alexa. It's pretty close. Um, on Raspberry Pi. Raspberry Pi, down to Raspberry Pi Zero. Apparently, you weren't supposed to be able to get on Zero. I've been able to do that. Zero is a $5 computer board that is essentially the most inexpensive mass production computer uh, device available. And I've, uh, I've written a full point-of-sale system on it. I uh, have integrated Stripe and a full POS on this system almost a, well, on Raspberry Pi almost a year ago. And people thought I was crazy. Like, why are you writing a full POS system for this? And I go, because I can, and I have some ideas on where it's going to go. Little did you know, I had an idea about something called voice commerce, and it's now, making, it's now making utter sense. 
So what's going on? Raspberry Pi, uh, you know, the full version, thirty-odd dollar computer system, is now able to fully operate with Alexa, with some limitations, but more or less fully operate. And uh, that was released on Friday, I believe. Had 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 little sleep in uh, in the hours uh, since then. I've been building different ideas about pre-processing and post-processing before I submit to Alexa for anal- for the information to be analyzed. And we're just on the beginning. The other thing I unilaterally announced was open office hours for anybody, anybody who wants to speak about voice commerce and voice payments. I um, Unfortunately, in my pre-announcement, I've already booked up, um, now it's almost three and a half months in advance. So... I'm going to have to work around this, and I've doubled my time, and now I'm back to about just a month. I mean, I've more than doubled up my time in, in back orders, if you will, and I'm finding other ways to maybe maximize my time by doing group um, meetings. And yesterday I had my first meeting, uh, meetings, if you will. Let's see, the ones I could talk about, two VCs that were absolutely sandbagged by what was going on with voice commerce. Um, angry in some ways that they didn't know about it already because it's already a thing with a lot of uh, hobbyists. And um, the most interesting conversation was a group of girls in Texas who are forming a Kickstarter project centered around voice commerce and voice payments and now Raspberry Pi. In fact, they were going to start this Kickstarter project even before Raspberry Pi came out uh, with Alexa. And I believe that it's going to completely change the dimensions on this project. And that's Alexa going off because I keep saying her name. So, yeah, that's some of the fun stuff that we're working on. And uh, I hope to be able to talk about that more in the future. It's uh, early days with uh, the group of girls. They are high school, uh, seniors in high school. And they have entirely blown me away. These are girls that pick up soldering irons, program software, and pretty much are running circles around most of the people I know that are working in voice commerce uh, already. They, they see a demographic, their own, uh, that will use this on an almost regular basis. And they themselves have been using voice commerce pretty much for a year continuously and have reached areas that I even have not gotten to. And I'm a researcher doing this essentially all the time. So exciting times, gentlemen, really exciting times. So do you think we're really on the premise of this breaking into the everyday life for people? Because voice recognition, I think, doesn't get the credit it deserves, partly because it's just people don't use it. Is this really the first emergence you think we'll see in, in breaking through to people's everyday life? This yes. project or something similar? Yes, and, and, and I can use these girls as a great reference point. We had a great conversation. I've actually communicated with them throughout the year. They read my, my article on Siri almost, uh, what was it, 2011? And it became a rallying call. And I found out Quora has made that particular posting a rallying call for most people on voice commerce. Because everything I'm writing about Alexa, I really wrote already about Siri many years ago. And Apple has not yet reached to that level. It's also what I've written about watch commerce. A lot of people said you gave up on watch commerce. No, that was a subset of voice commerce. And uh, obviously, the watch interface is really going to be a voice interface. Again, Apple hasn't really reached that level. What I'm seeing is people who are organically just uh, completely enveloped inside of this technology already. And one of the girl's moms, 
has been using um, you know Echo since early 2000. Well, sorry, early to 2015, late 2014. They were one of the first uh, Amazon Premium customers that got this, and uh, I was one of them. A few other people I know, and they immediately integrated into their life. Now they find it the most useful electronic device in their life. Uh, the mom uses it throughout the day for uh, cooking recipes. She's a stay-at-home mom, uh, five kids. Uh, her oldest daughter is one of the uh, girls that are in this project. And that influence made this girl meet with other girls at high school and say, we got to do something about this. And these girls started using voice a lot more on their phone. They started finding ways to do it. And they started a club at their um, high school. Now, their high school happens to be very close to the Silicon Valley of Texas, if you will, where all the electronics companies are. So most of these girls' parents are in the tech industry. But curious to me that the innovation is happening outside the areas where we're expecting it to happen. And even more curious to the pe people who are in venture capital because their usual deal flow chain has broken. They don't, you know, the guys that are out bird dogging this stuff aren't seeing it. And they don't have access. Like, for example, I talked to these girls. You know, are you going to get funding? They laughed. They said, I'm going to do a Kickstarter. Well, are you going to go VC and go to move to the dog patch? And they just laughed. They're like, no. Um, you know, there's a different generation. These, uh, these kids are, and I call them kids only because I'm so old. Uh, these young people are seeing the world entirely differently. Their ability to adapt to changes is so dramatically different than somebody in their 20s or 30s, uh, and certainly 40s or 50s or 60s. Actually, people in their 60s are actually, in my view, more able to adapt to change than sometimes people in their 30s because there's a sense of arrogance that sort of runs over you in technology after you've been in it for a while. And this is the problem with the fatigue we have with voice, right? The problem is voice has been around for a while. And if you've played with it a little bit, you kind of played and toyed with it, and you said, ah, it's just a toy. That's what they said about the mouse at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. That's what they said about touchscreens at various companies, including Microsoft, for almost a decade. Touchscreens are around forever. It took innovation. It took an outsider. Steve Jobs knew how to be a consummate outsider, even when he was deeply inside a company. Unfortunately, sure. that ethos is gone. You don't want to be an outsider because you're constantly placating to what the funding rounds would get you. And that does not create innovation. Some, I, I mean, you do have to point the devil's advocate that there are situations like the Segway when all of Silicon Valley's leaders get together and think it's going to be the grand revolution <laughs> and, you know, personal travel, Steve Jobs, Bezos all wanted to own the company. And yet, I don't see too many people on segways without <laughs> you know some form of uh, humor interjected into Mike, the. Mike, can, so. can I say Google Glass also? A group yeah, of Google Glass. Yeah. Google Glass. <laughs> All right. Do you know what the problem is? The problem is it wasn't organic. This Echo stuff is organic, and that's why it's so confounding, and that's why people are saying, "Oh no, it's going to be voice with VR." Because VR is something, one of my pet projects, that's what's going to take over the world. I'm like, you know, I asked these girls about VR. They chuckled at me. They said, yeah, maybe my boyfriend. I'm not going to VR uh, anytime really soon. I'm not going to buy dresses VR. That's not how I'm going to do it. They don't see it. They've, and these girls have tried it. You know, they've, uh, one of them already has uh, tried Oculus quite a few times. They've uh, been very close to some of the people developing it. And they don't see the need for it. Now, I don't say I fully subscribe to that. 
All I'm saying is that we tend to look at things that are new and unique and we expect it to become the next thing. So it's an exciting time. That was my last few days, actually. So it's kind of crazy. So I'm announcing open office hours. I'm going to develop a calendar system. I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to try as hard as I can to make the lag not be more than one month. Uh, This is a very vital subject and a topic. And I'm going to try to group people together of like minds. I've already grouped um, uh, about four people together that did not know each other from around the world. One right in, uh, in Faisal's area in Pakistan. So it's going to be fun. So, Mike, uh, Apple announced something really interesting on Monday. Um, a new addition to the Apple Watch. Can you talk yeah, they, about they, how they, it they, you? It's huge. They announced the care kit. Um, and to give you some you know, background on this, Apple announced the health kit in 2014. Um, basically, they saw that the third-party health and fitness apps were collecting your data <clears throat> from you know, step counts to sleep to food intake. Um, and they were basically keeping it all in silos. They weren't sharing it. There was no, uh, there was no collection or, or, or mass use available for, for app developers and thus consumers. And and what I think Apple saw in that was to say, if we can collect all this data in one location, if we can let apps build their value ads on top of our database of sorts, then the 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 healthcare technology sector would flourish. And I think they hit it spot on. Basically, this is the problem in health: is that um, you know to take a step back and look at it from a, the more traditional approach in uh, health IT, there's basically four major EMRs: uh, electronic medical record systems. Um, Cerner, Epic, all scripts, and then it kind of long tails from that. Uh, Next gen would probably be fourth in line. But basically, Epic and Cerner are two massive uh, technology companies that were started decades ago. And what happened was uh, when we went through a recession and the federal government issued the um, stimulus dollars, a large part of that stimulus package through Obama went into the ACA or the Affordable Care Act or what's known as Obamacare. And a part of that went to improving the technology and basically building electronic medical records. So there was a, there was a gentleman who basically took the uh, centerfold or he basically took the stance to say the health system needs stimulus to move from paper-based to electronic systems. And when that happened, uh, essentially the top companies at the time, Epic and Cerner, just found themselves in this Goldilocks position where they were using technology invented in the 60s, but they were the only option available. And now providers and healthcare systems and hospitals all had to move to electronic medical records, and they had a very short window of time. And this is very complicated technology. It's, it's a it's a lot of features to build. You know, you have to imagine interoperability from all the different hospitals. All the different people in a hospital have to have their functionality built in. So Epic and Cerner, uh, particularly Epic, had the majority of the functionality that the hospital systems needed at the time. And this is, remind you, this is probably in 2008, 2009. And so they basically exploded. They became billion-dollar companies over a few years. Um, growth rates were huge. But if you talk to any doctor or physician, nurse inside of a, uh, a hospital, they're going to tell you they hate using this. Um, even my, my girlfriend going through this now, you know, I, I hear the horror stories and it's because you basically, you know, <laughs> birthed a baby way before it was due. Um, and you put this artificial stimulation package in place, which sounds great. 
And to some extent, it was needed. Um, but essentially, you have these these companies kind of standing on thin legs. Now, they're doing their best they're, they can to innovate, make it a better user experience. But at the end of the day, their core goal is to get more hospitals on board, not to improve the system as it stands. So now the question is, if you're a entrepreneur and you're thinking, can I go and build something better? Right, I have all the Web 2.0 technology in the world. Why can't I go build a better solution, build all the functionality hospitals need, and get it into the marketplace? Well, you could do that, and there, you know, probably the most successful story of that is Allscripts, uh, which I think is run by one of the Bushes. Uh, interestingly enough, um, as a side note, <clears throat> and the the difficulty there is the of course hospital sales. You know, some of these hospitals spend tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars installing these systems. Uh, which are going to be engaged for multiple decade contracts. So it's a really difficult sales process to get started. And Apple saw this, Google saw this, and they both had the same idea, which is to say, what is health, what is an electronic medical record? And essentially it's a repository or data of all of your most personal health information. And why we have haven't seen a a good rail system or a good interoperability, basically if you go to a, a hospital and Florida, and then you go to one in California, they're not going to be able to exchange information. They basically call it the electronic warehouse, <laughs> which is to symbolize the, um, not the failure, but the lack of progression in, in how we think of technology, right? The technology benefit is that it can communicate with each other. You can share data from one hospital system to another, you would think, but that's not actually how it works. It's like taking your piece of paper that you have and then putting it in a database inside your hospital. So there's really not much benefit over paper-based systems without the ability to share that data across uh, hospital but Mike, systems. Mike, why did that happen? I mean, we've had computers for now uh, in hospitals 50 years, uh, we'll call them personal computers. What happened there? So what happened was it's it, no one has been able to step up and build the centralized database. The federal government sure as hell is not going to build the centralized database where all medical records are stored. So, you know, and almost taking a step back and comparing it to one of the examples often gets said is, well, how come the credit card industry or your banking industry has such um, has such uh uh, success in building a centralized database, right? And and essentially our healthcare system can't, is that because if I steal all the credit cards in the world, you know, it's only a matter of time before you could reset those credit cards and then, you know, ha- you know, those are insecure for a period of time, but your medical records, Brian's history of all the shit you've had to, done to you, once that's out, you can't reset it. So it's just such important information oh, wow. that, that, you know, that, that we have, and I think it's, I think it's a good thing that we haven't jumped the gun and built the centralized – imagine a database of 300 million people in the United States that have all their medical records. Like that's going to be the biggest freaking target ever for, for well, hackers. So That's already hacked. So, uh, the federal government's uh, medical database uh, yeah, is already yeah, But the, 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 you know, for one highlight there is it hasn't – um, it hasn't exploited everyone's health information. So yet, basically yeah. everyone's health information is stored on dedicated secure servers in every individual hospital, which is inefficient. So, but So, so break this down, of- though. A lot of people are asking me, what is Apple doing to protect medical information inside this care kit? I mean, right. so, from your perspective. So, they, so, they, so Apple is, 
is is storing information that you give it. Now, Apple obviously is, you know, they're a fantastic technology company and they would be vulnerable to attacks just like anyone else. But you got to ask yourself, if anyone's going to store information about your health records, do you want it to be your local hospital IT guy or do you want it to be Apple? And I think if, if you decide it's Apple, now not only um, is it Apple, but the information you give Apple is not particularly that important as it stands today. You know, this is things like how many steps did I walk? Uh, what was my average heart rate? What the things that you want to opt in towards you can, there's a, there's a fantastic success story of a Parkinson survey. They ask people, so they ask people a bunch of questions. What's your daily diet? Like things like that. So Apple, so fast forward to the next step, which is the research kit. Um, which they announced as part of the care kit, is a way for sure. medical researchers to widen their sample size. So this was what the, the Parkinson's um, study was built on. And uh, the first wave of, of care kit integration apps hit the App Store in April. So they're right around the corner. Um, each used the framework in different ways, though. So Apple developed four modules, which are the care card, which acts as the kind of um, health to-do list, a symptom and measurement tracker for reporting your data. Uh, an insight dashboard, so you can see how the action items on the care card affecting your health, and the connect tab for sharing that data with anyone, your partner, your family, or your physician. So basically, the cool thing is you can opt in to providing information into the Apple app, and then you can share it with your physician and your family and whoever. But basically, here's the here's the magic piece, is that the, the, the killer business here, the huge business in health, healthcare in our country is building the repository, the database, the electronic, electronic medical record. And right now that's held by Epic and Cerner. They hold the keys to the castle. Now, Google and Apple said, are we going to go and compete with them? And Google even tried. Six years ago, they tried to build their electronic medical record. It was uh, run by a guy, Ronnie Zeiger, who we interviewed on our podcast through the Home Hero podcast. It was an amazing story, but it didn't work out. Uh, and so they realized the way to get in was to go uh, the side door. Let's get all the consumers, like imagine you have tens or hundreds of millions of people using your app, putting in the health information into the app. Now you become the outside medical record to the hospital. So you have more information than even the hospital does. So the, now if you go into a, you know, a hospital and say, hey, we have every one of your people, we have all the information that they opted into. Sure, the physician has some inputs that they do. You know, they go in and they set in the diagnoses and the prescriptions and the medical medical input. But we have 10 times the information from the consumer side. So now, you know, fast forward five, five years, 10 years, it wouldn't surprise me if Apple builds uh, an electronic medical record or at least Google would. Google would give it a second shot if they had all the data. Uh, so I think it's a really interesting first step towards proving that Google and Apple can can get into the, the EMR business. Uh, by going consumer first instead of enterprise first. Now, you, you're running uh, an amazing cutting-edge company in medicine. I believe, ultimately, you're going to be more impactful in this. Home Hero, how does this stuff impact the future, if you can talk about it? Do you see it as converging on your mission? Sure, sure. So imagine you know, we provide in-home care services to seniors, particularly, uh, and specialized, specialized 
So uh, our caregivers would go into the home. They would go through their app to go through a checklist of things that they did. They may take uh, the weight measurement of the senior. They may put in the da- the data on the food that they ate, um, so they could you know say exactly what they consumed, what time throughout the day. They could go through. They're all geolocated on the app, so they can go through and take a walk. So they could say, "Hey, we walked." you know, a half a mile today or a mile and a half, whatever it is. Uh, They could say what time the senior went to bed. They could say what time they took their medications. They could go through and put in any physical um, conditioning they did. You know, did we do arm stretches, things like that. So basically imagine all of these things collected into the Home Hero app. Now the Home Hero app connects to the care kit and is a piece of that patient's, that person's overall health data. Now we take that to the physician on their doctor's appointment and say, hey, here is all the information that the senior did throughout the home in the last six months or six weeks or whenever. Uh, what do you prescribe? What do you, you know, the doctor has so much more information to make an intelligent um, diagnosis. So they can say to someone, hey, you don't have to go to the emergency room or you don't have to take this medication. You can take this one because you know, I see what you've been eating is the problem, or I see you haven't been exercising, or there's just, whenever you have data, you have improvements. Um, so I look at it and say, we're going to collect a ton of data, and then we and someone else and someone else are going to build applications on top of that to synthesize that data for the benefit of, of physicians. And I think now, that's the this, really magic part. And this will help, I think, ultimately make the people who the loved ones of the senior are being taken care of to have a better connection to the care that's being given and just their overall, you know, life, their mental and physical health. Is is that a, a positive attribute to the future? You think hugely, and I, I think I think also too, you can you can make this fun. You know, you can say you can say uh, what you know. All these people uh, are just like you and I. They are, they have disabilities and they're elderly, um, but they like to have fun. They like to engage in you know, competition. So imagine it said, you know, the person across the street, you know, Judy is 89 years old and she walked uh, three miles last week and you only walked 1.5. Can you beat her next week? And it gives people something to shoot for, something to strive for. And I think your health at that age is such an important piece uh, of you. You know, it's your, it's your limiting factor to in many ways your happiness. So it's something that people should really, um, think about and any way to improve that I think is so important for people. I think I think the most critical thing to uh, seniors is their food consumption, the amount and what they're eating because they're alone a lot of times and they tend to eat uh, things that are not in their best interest if they eat at all. And that's another problem. And then their activity level. And if, if there's ways to socialize that and gamify it, I think that's going to be phenomenal. And I, and I do believe that you'll see uh, a lot more uptake on that than really any other sector. So it's, it's a great direction, I believe. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's our, our piece of the puzzle, I think is, is even one that's while significant, it's just, it's one piece of the puzzle. You know, everyone is, uh, I think when you have a world where you have connected health information, um, there's just so much you can do with it. I mean, we, 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 our, our minds, I think are limited by the fact that we haven't been exposed to any potential of this in the past. It's like, you know, look at all the information Facebook provides to other apps and services that then in turn make awesome experiences for you. The same thing could be happening in health, but to date we haven't had that central, uh, a repository, that central database of, of, of information. That's what Apple was building here. That's why it's so special. And do you, th- do you see a corollary at Google? I mean, is Google going to find this? 
Oh yeah, Google's already working on it. I, I think they'll announce it in their next. Uh, if they haven't announced anything similar to this so far, they'll announce it in their next uh, their next major announcement. Very good. Let's see. So Faisal, um, cross border payments. Uh, we uh, we were talking about that pre show. Uh, we were going to dive into that whole thing about small values and and instant transfers. Yeah. So what's your view on this? So that's an area which is catching up a lot. Uh, many startups in, in the valley and all across, especially in Europe, are now investing a lot of money, technology, and you know IP into making small value instant transfers. Uh, a reality, which is, which is kind of, you know, strange because we are in 2016. We can send an email across the world instantly, but we can't do small values. I mean, if you, if I want to send five bucks to someone, I can't. It I, they either must be using the same uh, payment system that you know I'm subscribing to, or uh, they must be in the same country, etc. But being able to send money across instant instantly, and that's the key word, instantly, is just not possible today. I mean, let's look at the U.S. You know, I mean, even in the U.S., if you're not on the same payment system, it's pretty difficult to get money, right? I mean, uh, look at the wallets that you have over there. If you're not on PayPal, well, you may, you know, I mean, you have to go to your friend and say, hey, so can you PayPal me the money? But that's okay. But if you don't have PayPal and I have PayPal, how do I send you money instantly? It's a big issue. Big issue. Now, you were talking about how this whole uh, this whole thing is going to sort of take place from, I guess, the smaller uh, countries, the undeveloped countries, and maybe move its way coming to the West. How do you see this transposing? How does it, how does it well, move I mean, on? There are, two, there are two schools of thought. So w- one is the domestic U.S. thing, right? So even interoperability between wallets is just not present at, uh, right now. I mean, if you, like I said, if I want to pay you and you are using a different wallet and I'm using a different wallet, I just can't pay you in real time. Sure you got to tell me that analogy, though. You you'd said, <laughs> if I got a Gucci wallet, go so, down that road so, because this so, is phenomenal. So the wallets are pretty, you know, it's an interesting uh, thing. If you let's say you know you have to go out and get your wife a wallet and you go to the mall and you step into the store and the lady shows you a nice gucci wallet let's say and she says well you know remember this is the physical world uh, the digital world being manifested into the physical world juxtaposed so the lady says well this is a great wallet it comes in you know the color red you can store us dollars on it Uh, you can only store capital one credit cards on it you can't store your pictures you can't put coins in it yes you can (laughs) <laughs> partially store a you know a, a an id on it and that's it oh and by the way you can only pay to another gucci wallet or and you can and by the way every time you pay you owe two percent to gucci how ridiculous would that be right i mean think about it today when i go buy a physical wallet i never give that thought i can put anything into it I can pay anyone. I don't have to pay anything to the manufacturer who made the wallet. But the digital wallet, the mobile money wallets that we have today have those restrictions. You can only put so much currencies in it. You can only pay to, you know, to, to so-and-so. Uh, you can't do this. You can't do that. So that is the. those are the barriers that I think a lot of people need to look at and break them. Because if, if, if we had that physical manifestation that is, exists right now in the digital world, People would stop carrying wallets. I mean, there'd be an uproar, right? So how how would you feel if someone told you, well, you know, sorry, you can't pay me because we don't have the same brand of wallet? 
now looking through those eyes, it's a, it's a completely different view than looking at the way we've gone uh, gone down this road and, and seen the development of cost structures within the movement of money. Obviously, if we were starting from today moving forward with the technology we have today, what would it look like? I mean, knowing that we have this inter- interconnectivity uh, and, and not these back-end bank networks, do you think that would have changed things? Do you think the the cost structure would have been different? I don't know about that, but I mean, let's look at it from an email point of view, right? So early 80s, email was very segregated. CompuServe had their own thing and, you know, I don't know, AOL. Well, not AOL. I mean, the other guys had their own thing and BitNet had its own email system and someone came along and made the at the rate symbol and so forth. And then email got connected. And in the early days, there was... There was um, <clears throat> You had to pay to get email, right? So you had to, yeah. and people had to host email servers, et cetera, et cetera. Today, you just send an email. You never think about it as it being a domestic email or an international email. You just send it. Uh, you don't think twice about it. But when we do... Same so, thing with phone call, really. Right, I mean, if exactly. you think about yeah, how, right? how you used to think about distance, long distance so phone call. So think about it now that we have mastered to do uh, to do data transfer right information transfer and now we are in that age where we are doing value transfers i mean let's not take the example of bitcoin but even if i but although it's an excellent example sure but, but think about it so today if i send you money uh electronically uh, you have to be on the very same network have to be on pretty much it's a it's pretty much a closed system i can't uh, when we send money you actually do think that, okay, I'm sending money internationally or I'm sending money domestically. You think that, but it shouldn't be the case. But but the fact remains that, you know, these are the hurdles and these are, these hurdles exist today. Uh, what's, the, what's the way out? I think the way out would be to have a system that is absolutely interoperable in every manner. Uh, I think it'll eventually, movement of money will cost next to zero. It will probably won't, won't even have a price attached to it. Um, if you, if today, you know, there is a 3% or a 2% charge for receiving money from an other external payment system, then what do you do? Uh, let's, let's apply that very same analogy to an email. How would you feel if you received an email and 2% of it was shaved off randomly because that's what the, you know, the email provider, uh, <laughs> charge just to send you that data. I mean, Think about it. Two percent of your data or if your email is missing because that's what it costs to send the email across. But on the on the on the payments front, that that is what the reality is today. So I think that's got to change. And I think a lot of people are putting too much emphasis on making you know everyone's making these, these uh, going after the low hanging fruit. Let's go for cross border payments. Let's go this. Let's do that. But I think they're missing out on the ba- very basic elements, which is you know. Let's reevaluate the wallet. What is it doing? What what are the problem areas? After all, every startup that goes into the business of you know uh, payments is addressing some form of a problem. And I think so. It, and I think in my mind, the, the area that they're looking at is incorrect. They just look at you know how can we make it frictionless. I think there's a whole lot more to it than just being frictionless. So we talked a lot, and you were you know pioneering this, the whole idea of what Facebook might mean to this, and maybe other companies. Do you still subscribe to that thesis that the 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 company with the most eyeballs is most likely to dominate in this space, or at least innovate for the short term? 
I think I think absolutely. I think it's. Uh, I think it was not very recently. Someone asked um, uh, the president or the CEO of PayPal, "When is when are you guys going to become a bank, or when is Venmo going to become a bank?" I think it's going to happen in- inevitably. I think the same thing is going to happen with Starbucks. I think the same thing is going to happen with Facebook and Google. I think, and and then somewhere around along the line, they'll make a consortium or some sort and say, "Okay, listen, it's now possible to move money from Facebook." to PayPal, to Google, to Starbucks, and that's going to happen. It, 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 I mean, wall gardens are great, but I think at the end of the day, money movement is going to happen and it needs to be. It is so restricted right now. I mean, I can't even tell you. No matter how much we say that we've made very you know great strides in progress as far as uh, uh, push, uh, pushing digital payments out, it is a very, very fragmented system. And I think some of it is political, too. There is this fear that uh, as money crosses all boundaries, there might be flight capital and, and devaluation of currencies, et cetera. So I think that's part of the issue. And that's why there is that glimmer of hope with something like Bitcoin that was a borderless currency hmm. so that, in fact, it was, in fact, it was doing a favor for other you know, terrestrial currencies by not being tied to a specific uh, you know. Brian and and Mike, you know, in this example of cross-border currency movement, there is a floor, and that floor typically is $100. Sending payments below $100 is just not possible, or if it's possible, it's extremely expensive. And even then so, it is a matter of settlement on the other end, which takes maybe sometimes a couple of hours and sometimes a couple of days. So imagine walking into New York City and the mayor saying, you know, as of today, Every transaction in this city, or or in the U.S. for for that matter, below a hundred dollars is not going to exist. Can you imagine the size of wow. the economy? I mean, just just yeah. imagine, right? So imagine if we were able to enable it. If if someone is uh, waiting at a petrol station in um, Manila and she you know texts her husband, "Hey, I'm running six dollars short. Can you send it to me?" And he you know sends it to her immediately. $6, and without even thinking about it, let's say it costs him uh, 10 cents to send that money. And those $6 get credited to this lady's bank account immediately so that she can pay for the petrol. That is the kind of economy that is absolutely missing out. How big is it? I mean, I've seen models that say, well, you know, cross-border economy is $600 billion, so this could be half of that. In certain cases, I think it's much, much bigger than that. I, th- I think it could easily surpass a trillion dollars. So it's a huge, huge thing. Like I said, look at the basic problems. What is the problem that you're trying to solve? And if we uh, can see that there is a problem, you know, uh, uh, that exists, we need to have people address it. You know, Faisal, one of the things that was really surprising this week, and I think it might add to this, at least in the United States and maybe go across the world, is we've been talking about this for a while, is Apple Pay on the web or Apple Pay on Safari is really what it's, it's going to be. And I really believe it's, um, it's going to be a revolutionary shift that helps us maybe start bridging this gap. A lot of people say, well, why is that? Well, it's because the web is where 92% of commerce still takes place. It's not inside of apps, and that's not due to change anytime soon, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, apps do great, but they are very limited in what people are shopping for. Even inside of Amazon app, Target app, and we can even include Uber and all these other sort of service-based apps. 
Uh, Apple Pay for Safari, in fact, I'm predicting that Apple may release a Safari version for Android. And there's about three, maybe four modalities which will allow Apple Pay on Safari, on Android, without the need of Touch ID. And I can't go down that road too far, but there are ways to do that very effectively without absolutely actually owning an Apple product. It's, it's going to be an interesting strategy. It's very uh, similar to the strategy Apple had with iTunes and Safari on Windows computers. So keep an eye out for that. But Apple's also, this is a big part about cross-border. Apple's also working on Apple Cash. I'm calling it Apple Pay Cash. And uh, who knows what it's going to be called, but I'm tending to think that might be in the direction. And this is going to be a new bank-based network, which will allow zero-cost transfer of funds between member banks. The member banks are all the money center banks in the United States, apparently, at this point. And they will openly allow um, the entire group of banks in the United States to join. Now, there's also the possibility that this is going to be expanded on an international spectrum. Why is it important? Because it may pretend to the possibility that cross-border payments, at least what we would consider substantially lower payments, uh, less than $50, maybe less than 100 but I'm certain less than $50, to move effortlessly and cost-free to everybody involved between banks. And the reasoning is quite simple. The banks really want to hold on to their customers. They want to create their ownership of the, being the technology center. And I believe Apple has convinced them in a very similar sense to, that they did with Apple Pay for credit cards and Apple uh, products like iTunes, that if they don't do this, upstart companies like and, and maybe other technology companies like Facebook might sidestep them. So I believe that we're coming to that point, and it's just this week that my good buddy Jason Del Rey over at Recode wrote a, an incredible piece about the beginning of Apple Pay on Safari. So that's, that's definitely coming along. And i got to ask you about something else, Faisal. We were talking about you buying uh, some products from Amazon in your part of the world. What blew my mind is the duties and fees that you're paying to get something even today on that part of the world. Can you cover that in some detail? Because <clears throat> it's a different insight than what I would have otherwise known. Well, I mean, you know, things that are sold in the U.S. have to be flown here, and you can do the regular postal mail thing, which takes forever to come. But everyone you typically uses FedEx or DHL, etc., which is expensive on a per cubic uh, foot basis slash pound basis. It's pretty expensive. And then, when like, they a, give me a feel. Give me a feel for that. Something like, say, a pound. Well, let's say a book is for twenty dollars. Uh, sure. If you want to FedEx it, the shipping would probably be about 35 Wow. Yeah. Wow. So how does one deal with that? On, I mean, how does e-commerce take off in your part of the world when the shipping is so – I mean, I'll give you an example. I use an app called Wish, and I wish I never had this app. And I, I feel bad even talking about it because it's quite addictive. <laughs> uh, I, I've purchased things on Wish for a dollar, uh, for $5. And, and, and they come from China. Everything comes from China uh, at Wish. And I'm blown away that I can buy an item for a dollar and have it delivered and somebody actually made money on it. I wish we had that. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. So you don't have Wish. No. Uh, don't wish for Wish. It's, it's quite addictive. A lot of the stuff is interesting, but, you know, I don't know. You, you got to look at so it. People, to, to so e-commerce stores in Pakistan and even in India and everywhere else, they basically sure. go at what's popular. They buy that, they stock that, and they sell that. 
some some people don't like stocking it so what they'll do is they'll just display the SKU and then when you want to buy it then they'll order it from the US and bring it in bulk you know shipments coming in every 14 days or so so the 14 day sort of slow boat shipping shipping cycle is one way that they offset the costs mm-hmm. what what about duties and import taxes and things like that how bad is it it's applicable everywhere very few countries don't have duties but typically uh, when you're importing it you'll have to pay some import tax you know depending on the on the category of the item being imported and there'll be sales tax there'll be GST value added tax you know quite a few taxes and taxes can add up quite a lot so easy to say in in certain cases you know 50% of the value 40% of the invoice value etc so that will be added to tax in addition to the shipping cost in addition to whatever the profit margin the uh, e-commerce store has online so the vision of the Amazon world that we have here in the United States, where basically Amazon very different from what we have here. Okay, so that's somebody coming from the outside. Now, in the inside, they're not obviously paying those dues and and and, and assessments and, mm-hmm. and and other fees. So, has that slowed down the you know growth of e-commerce in in that region because of? the way most of these companies are U.S. based. It has. But at the end of the day, you know, you have uh, regional players who are warehousing it, making, uh, so to speak, mini Amazons, if you will. And they're, and they're starting up and they're, you know, Flipkart, for example, in India is a fantastic example. At the end of the day, whatever Amazon is selling is not Amazon stuff. It's stuff that's sold regularly in shops. Sure. And that's exactly what they do. They say, okay, we'll sell refrigerators, we'll sell televisions, we'll sell computers, iPads, apples, etc. And they'll go talk with the local distributors and, you know, make out uh, stocking deals with them. And then they'll, they'll um, put it in their warehouse and sell it locally. So local warehousing, local versions of Amazons are slowly showing up, but not to the scale that Amazon is in right now. Now, do you know is Amazon coming in that region, uh, specifically Pakistan? Do you, is well, that something Pakistan. that they're so in India? It's facing, I know India. Yeah, India, it's there already. It's facing a lot of competition from the local players, um, but you know Amazon's got literally an, uh, a blank check to go and conquer India because India is a very important market, and likewise the local players who are VC funded are also giving them a hard time. So they are there. Um, is it a battle of money at this point? I mean, is, whoever it is, has... It is. It is, yeah. literally. It is. But why Why not some of the smaller countries uh, like Pakistan and, and around the region? What, what, what stops Amazon f- from moving there where there potentially is you know, instant opportunity because well, I, of... Uh, I guess at the end of the day, it's all about, uh, you know, the, the bean counter is going to be making that decision. You know, hey, listen, population of 1.3 billion versus, let's say, 180, billion, uh, 180 million, you know, yeah. 1.3 billion wins easily. So you, you, go, well, yeah. you go conquer that market. I mean, you could go conquer 20 markets and they will still not be equal to, let's say, 1.3 billion people. So why not just do that? I hear you, but I mean, uh, the small markets add up too, and uh, you can get a higher percentage of. They the, do, but but, but if they if they establish themselves regionally within India as a as a master player, as a as a mega player, then they can easily expand into twenty other countries. You know, expanding into every country takes its own toll, right? So registration, dealing with the local law, setting up, hiring a team, logistics, etc. But do that for one very large mega country like India. It's just easier. Beautiful. Well, good insight. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Faisal, really appreciate that perspective. 
Um, guys, it's been a fantastic show. I, I'm glad we hit a bunch of different topics uh, and look forward to getting this one up. I got to leave. I got to leave with a, a concept that I brought up pre-show, and it, it, it's to keep it in everybody's mind, and that is where we are today in technology, where we are with voice commerce and voice payments, voice interaction. Again, there's a fatigue for the people who have been around it for a while, and they say, "What's new?" It, you know, I understand that, but you have to look past it. What we have today is a group of tools. And like any tool laid in front of you, let's call it a hammer and a chisel and, and a block of wood, any tool left in front of you is only as powerful as your creative mind allows it to be. And what I'm seeing is the creativity is coming from all areas that are unexpected with this particular technology. Uh, I'm always shocked on what somebody can do with tools. And, and it, it literally gives me goosebumps to see what somebody can do with a hammer and chisel that I can't do, but the fact that one person can do it is the influence and the motivation for me to go on. And that's where we are at this moment in history. And I, I can't stress it enough that if you can look at the world through new eyes and not the jaded eyes, and again, the young is helping us, the people who have just grown up with the technology enveloped around them, we have an incredible future ahead. A lot of problems, obviously, a lot of problems to solve. But I'm really invigorated over the conversations I've had over the last couple of months around these new technologies. And it, and it looks like if you want to learn more about this, there's a uh, looks like the biggest conference on voice recognition is called Speech Tech, and it's yes. May 23rd in Washington D.C. this year. So right around the and, corner. Um, I might add that I might be doing a conference. Uh, I, I'm kind of leaking it out now, but I've been encouraged by so many people. And I don't when I say I'm doing a conference. Not me. I don't, I'm an I'm inventor and researcher. Um, I may participate to a great extent, but I think sometimes speech check is brilliant, but it's been around for a while and it's great guys uh, and gals. But I, I think what is needed is a conference that's very much like the maker conferences that we've seen that surfaces the creativity that's taking place that doesn't get the spotlight right now. And uh, so hopefully I'll have more to, to say about that in the future. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Great talking to you guys. Have Speak a great week. weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.